I'm Kyle Dyer, and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, November 18th, 2022. We are a week and a half out from the midterm elections, and we're still talking about everything and how it all played out and the what's at stake especially in regards to the future of the Colorado Republican Party. For our panel this week, I am so pleased to introduce you to Patricia Calhoun, our founder and editor of Westward, Sean Walsh, Sean Walsh Consulting, also Albus Brooks, former Denver City Council member and current executive at Millinder White Construction Company, and Sage Nauman, vice president of Communications 76 Group, who also recently worked on the Joe O'Day campaign for Senate. Welcome to you all. I feel as though our attention is being pulled in all different directions right now with the close race in the 3rd Congressional District, which at the time of this taping was still undecided. There's also the story of the Democrats taking full control of the state legislature here in Colorado. And then earlier this week, the focus being turned to the 2024 election with former President Trump announcing he's going to run again. Patty, there is so much discussion about what may transpire. And then there's also the let's get to work attitude. Well, I think poor Colorado Republicans were still licking their wounds on Tuesday when Donald Trump added insult to injury by again saying he was going to run in 2024. So you have P Colorado races, which clearly Donald Trump was the ghost of Christmas past on all those races. Donald Trump definitely hurt Colorado's Republicans. And I sat on a panel with Dick Wadhams last week, the former Colorado Republican chair, and he predicted that Colorado Republicans wouldn't come back for at least a generation, which I think is an over-exaggeration. I think people are looking for alternatives to maybe the mainstream parties. And when you have Trump still having a firm hold on one party, that makes it really tough. But you look at Colorado, 46% independents unaffiliated people, maybe they lean Democrat, maybe they lean Libertarian, maybe they lean Republican, but they're looking for other answers. A generation, that is something. Um, Sean, regarding the third district, which stretches from Trinidad and Pueblo all the way to Grand Junction and Eagle County, it's been 14 <clears throat> years since a Democrat represented that area in Congress. This race was so close. What does this say about the electorate in that part of Colorado, let alone the rest of our state? Well, I think it says a lot about where, we, where we're seeing close races all over the, our, our state and in the, in the country. The third congressional is really no different than any other community. They've got red counties, they've got blue counties, they've got purple counties. It has been represented by both Republicans and Democrats. We remember John Salazar and, of course, Ben Knight, Horse Campbell before him. So it does toggle back uh, uh, between the two. Uh, yeah, Lauren Boebert, that, that was kind of written off by both parties as an easy win for Lauren, Bo Lauren Boebert. It surprised both sides of it. Uh, Adam Frisch ran as a moderate, and he succeeded in making it very, very close. And the reason that it's still undecided as of today is because county clerks, all 27 county clerks in the 3rd Congressional, are required to wait until the Wednesday following the Tuesday to count provisional ballots, ballots that weren't signed, that are now being cured, overseas ballots, ballots that are turned in from different counties. So you've got 27 county clerks uh, kind of managing this. Albus, we hear people say that, like Patty was saying, maybe Republicans and unaffiliates wanted to go away from a different direction from what President Trump had offered or some of the people who are running for office that followed in his way. Um, with Trump back in the race, how does that influence call the, the Republican Party at the Colorado level? Yeah, that's really interesting. Think about he's getting back into the race. And so what happened in the midterms, a lot of people want to write him off, but 
this is a president running again who has millions of dollars um, to really make an impact. Um, but his own daughter didn't even show up to the announcement. She said she will not be involved in the campaign. So I think um, that lets you know where that campaign is headed. As regards for, to Colorado, let's be very clear. This is a pioneering state. Um, this is a state where it, it shows more leadership when you can uh, you know, distance yourself. And I think the Republican Party is looking for other opportunities to become a little bit more uh, independent, unaffiliated, to, to really get that pragmatic vote in Colorado back. All right, that leads me to Sage. Sage, you worked on the O'Day Senate race, and Joe O'Day got a lot of attention nationally. And some pollsters said he might eke out this win over incumbent Michael Bennett. That didn't happen. Um, what is going on? What is the next move for the Colorado GOP? Well, I think that the Republican Party in general, not just in Colorado, is at a crossroads. I mean, the unaffiliated voter, they look at Republicans and they see a party that is beholden to one man. They see a party that is hypocritical. I mean, when we talk about inflation, which was the biggest issue this year, Donald Trump spent almost as much money in his four years in office than, than Barack Obama did in eight. Uh, they see a party that has gone down the spiral with conspiracy theories. This is a party without a direction. And we have a clear choice in front of us. Donald Trump's announcement makes that choice even more clear for Republicans. They can either pick the path of relevancy or they can deserve everything they're gonna get by picking the path of Donald Trump and whatever in the heck we're following right now. Um, th the fact of the matter is, is that Joe O'Day, Look, if Joe O'Day can't win a statewide race or come close in the state of Colorado, no Republican can. Because this is somebody who, you know, broadly speaking, was, you know, much more liberal on things like abortion. He supported the infrastructure bill. He thought Merrick Garland should have gotten a hearing. I mean, this is, this is not your classic conservative who, you know, you know, just always supports the party line. This is someone who bucked his party time after time, and it didn't matter. We saw the same exact thing with Pam Anderson, a candidate for Secretary of State, who constantly was saying that the party was wrong when it came to the stolen elections. And it didn't matter, because the party brand is matters so much for candidates, they can't break it. Unless you're a Lisa Murkowski, a Joe Manchin, uh, you know, a Susan Collins, the party brand is, is what's going what's gonna to bring you down. And in Colorado, uh, the Republican brand is destroyed. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the state legislature. Both houses will be dominated by Democrats when the session begins on January the 9th. Sean, what do you expect to happen? I would say to Democrats in the House, you know, be careful what you wish for. Uh, legislative bodies find things to argue about regardless of how, the partisan, how, how partisanship breaks down. There's a lot of new progressives that were elected in the House. Elizabeth Epps, uh, my state representative, um, is there's going to be a tangle, I think, between, between some of the newer, more progressive House members and the governor, especially on crime. The governor has signaled already that he wants to tack more to the middle on crime, and there's a lot of uh, newer House members that are going to be uh, now emboldened by this enormous mandate they got from their 46 seats that are going to butt heads with some more of the moderate uh, members of the, of the caucus and with the governor. Mm -hmm. Um, the governor sent out his budget before the election, and it called for increases in education funding, um, which in light of the dismal post-pandemic test scores, you know, that's something worth looking into. Also, he calls for increases to support crime fighting when we see our crime in our, rising in our cities. But Albus, voters made choices that call for a reduction in spending. So Democrats just can't pass whatever. There's going to be some limits. Yeah, that's right. You know, the, this, this budget that the governor passed was a 7% increase. Um, 
and really trying to attack major issues like you talked about education and let's just stop for a second and talk about our education funding it is woefully underfunded quick k-12 um, higher ed i mean if you rank um, colorado we are near last and for the amount of talent we're trying to bring in and the place we are trying to go as colorado that's shocking to a lot of people and so i can see um, the legislator legislature focusing on K-12 education and higher ed. Um, you know, the other, the other issue is 26% increase in safety, right? Everybody's talking about safety. We are number one, um, or dead last, in, in um, you know, uh, uh, car thefts, right? And so everybody is focusing on it. This is a major issue uh, in the state, and I just think that what the, what's gonna happen is with these other bills passing one, two, three for housing and things like that, um, the GBC, JBC is going to have a tough and difficult time to balance this budget and so uh, it remains to be seen. Yeah, it remains to be seen. Now Sage, for four years, you were the communications director for the Colorado Senate Republicans. So now how do those Republican leaders in the state legislature communicate and make an impact when they're drastically in the minority? That's a great question. I mean, honestly, I think for Republicans in the legislature, the ones that are left, at least, um, the, the strategy doesn't change very much. I mean, they were in the minority before. The only difference is now is it's kind of a question of whether or not Democrats want to continue trying to be bipartisan, right? Whether they ask Republicans to look at their bills, contribute to them. And I think that that's going to play a big part into how Republicans decide to lead in the legislature. If they're part of the process, I think that most Republicans that are there are looking to make bills better. They're looking to contribute. They're not there to just throw sand in the gears. But I can promise you that if, if Democrats in the legislature say, I'm sorry, you guys lost. We don't have to listen to you anymore. They are going to see an emboldened minority that is going to be loud and they're going to make sure that their voice is heard. Um, we've seen that in the past. We saw bills being read at length. I was there during that time and that's what happens when you ignore the minority. As small as that number may be, the fact is, is that they do have tools at their disposal. They do have voices at their disposal. And, and you know, if you look at like the Senate caucus, there's a lot of very talented legislators and there are a lot that work across the aisle. I mean, Senator Rankin, mm -hmm. who serves on the Joint Budget Committee, he's somebody who is constantly looking for ways to build that bridge between, between the two parties. And, and if they decide to shut that bridge down, then there's going to be some issues there. So I th I'm more interested in seeing how Democrats handle their majorities and how Republicans respond to that. Okay. Um, House Democrats have chosen Representative Julie McCluskey to be the House Speaker. It's been more than 20 years since we had a speaker that represents the Western Slope of Colorado, and she has filled up the Joint Budget Committee, which you've been talking about, with two first-timers, two other women from Westminster and Denver. Patty, this is the committee, the JBC, that is responsible for creating Colorado's budget. And as we've talked about, there are a lot of limits and then also reports of you know, more of a recession. It's the toughest job I would think in the House. It is going to be a really tough job, but I think Julie McCluskey's up to it. It looks like a good lineup for the JBC. The thing is, one of the things that's going to make it more easier, I think, for the governor is, look who he just made his chief of staff. He moved the former speaker, Alec Garnett, to that position. So he's got someone who knows how to deal with the legislature. He knows someone who can play with the games, can talk to the people, can listen to the Republicans. I think we will actually have a fairly civil legislative session. We have to remember all Democrats do not walk in lockstep. From Elizabeth, Elizabeth Epps to the other side, there's a big swing. 
and I think we will have, with Alec Arnett there, we'll have a pretty um, reasonable session, well-balanced. Okay, I hope so. Let's talk about housing, affordable housing and finding a solution for the unhoused. And this, with this cold weather we have right now, it's even more front of mind. On Monday of this week, almost a week after Election Day, it was clear that Colorado voters approved Proposition 123, which will set aside $300 million each year in existing tax revenue to help local governments and nonprofits increase the amount of affordable housing across Colorado. Albus Prop 123 is the first First housing measure to pass statewide. You work in an industry that yes. provides housing and affordable housing. Yes. Is this going to be the trick to turn things around for Colorado? If people are looking for a magic solution and bullet, uh, that's not going to happen in housing. We are dealing with a systemic issue. Uh, we have 350,000 units that we need to build for individuals paying more than a third of their income. And so the we're not in a crisis, and I try to help folks to really understand this, right? Um, that is an emergency. And there are states and there are cities now calling for a state of emergency because of their homeless population and folks sleeping outside because of the, the migration issue that is happening at the border. We in Denver right now are just housing about 100 migrants and churches and things like that. And so this is an important measure, but it's not going to be the measure to solve everything. Okay. Sage, I've been watching a lot what's going on in Aurora. Last fall, Aurora leaders went to places like Houston and San Antonio and went down to the Springs to see how these cities are reducing homelessness. And this week, the Aurora City Council approved a new idea which involves a campus aimed at helping people get back on their feet. Yeah, it's it's great to see that cities are trying new things because I think that that's kind of what we have to do. Um, I, I Obviously, I think Denver's tried a lot of different strategies and a lot haven't worked. But the, f the fact of the matter is that no one has that the magic bullet when it comes to homelessness. But I do think it's important to recognize that when you talk about those who are experiencing homelessness, I mean, my father was homeless on the streets during a lot of my childhood and, and, and dealt with addiction and went to prison and all that. Um, it's, it's not a simple issue. I mean, you're talking about people who are dealing with significant mental health issues, significant uh, addiction issues. And, and a lot of times there's this, this simplicity of like, well, just take them and put them under a roof. And it's really not that easy because what you need to do is you need to be able to get them help because if you just throw them in a roof, that means they're going to overdose in private. They're going to die quietly somewhere else. And that's not, that's not a solution. And so I think that it's good to see cities like Aurora leading the charge. Um, if I recall, that vote was like 7-3. It was, it was somewhat bipartisan. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's what cities need to do. And they need to travel around the country. They need to look at private-public partnerships. There's a lot of great organizations across this country that have done really, really good work in the cities that they're in, but they can't expand. It's not as easy as that. So it's very good for cities to go out, see what these great organizations are doing, or even find ways to partner with them, expand out in, into their city. Um, I, I, that's the way that we're going to have to handle it, and we're going to have to do it in a bipartisan manner because this is not a partisan issue. Absolutely. You know, Patty, um, Denver announced its 2023 action plan a few months ago. It's the city's seventh plan to help those experiencing homeless in Denver since 2005. Is seventh, the seventh time the charm for Denver? Well, and they've morphed all along. Yeah. No, it's not going to be the charm because you have to keep changing. Some things work, some things don't. Denver's going pretty all in on the housing first concept right now, which is interesting, which is you put people in housing, then you get them the services they need. Aurora's splitting it up. They're kind of doing a three-level, which is some people have to go into treatment, some people have to get jobs, some people will have emergency housing. And I think the split in those two cities 
also shows the challenges with the affordable housing money because there's 300 million, but municipalities will apply for it. And municipalities all have different approaches to affordable housing. Sure. So you're going to have to have this bureaucracy at the state level trying to decide which ones work. And one other thing about 123, big win for Mike Johnston. Would he have decided he was going to run for mayor if 123 hadn't won? Because he pushed that through. I sat in the seat that Sage is sitting in a few weeks ago, and I predicted that uh, Proposition 123 would, would be defeated, not the least of which because it didn't go far enough for progressives and because they didn't put the, together the right coalition, I think, of support. Um, it is, I, I still think it's bad policy for a lot of reasons, um, but it is at the local issue where these where matters of, of homelessness and affordable housing are, are the most felt. Um, and you're seeing different approaches from Denver and Aurora. Um, it's really these local governments really are the incubator for policy. Uh, the requirement that a city to be available or to be able to avail themselves of these funds would have to increase their, their affordable housing budget by 3% every year. A lot of cities are going to look at that and maybe take a pass on some of that money. Uh, an, uh, a proposal, or rather, um, the endorsement by the Metro Mayor's Caucus of 123 barely passed. It was a tough con conversation among cities because, again, they're the ones where the impact is felt the greatest. Okay. The measure, uh, last week, Patty said that the country would be laughing at Colorado because of the measure that uh, was Prop 122, the passage of uh, psych psychedelic mushrooms. So, um, Patty, we'll get to you in a minute. I, I haven't seen, heard too much laughing. I've just seen a lot of articles. Um, Sage, let me start with you. This measure marks the most sweeping psychedelic legalization in the country as it's discriminalized uh, five different psychedelic substances. Over a million people voted yes on this. Yeah, so, you know, I, I can't remember. I think it was a founding father who said that our, uh, our states were the laboratories of democracy. I don't think this is what they were expecting, <laughs> but that, that is really what Colorado is being. And it's kind of what Colorado's always been, right? The same exact thing happened with marijuana, where it was we were the, we were the test case, and then everyone else kind of just watched and, and to see what would happen. Um, look, Colorado's got that libertarian streak where we're kind of like, you know, live and let live, do what you want to do, just, you know, stay off my land, basically. Um, and and I, I think that that's kind of, this is kind of an extension of that. You know, it's just the people saying like, look, you know, I, there's looks to be some evidence that these kind of uh, uh, psychedelics can help people suffering with depression and PTSD. And quite frankly, if they're doing it as long as they're not interfering with my life, what do I care? And so it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out, because obviously I think that this is I, even a step further than marijuana in regards to like what we're expecting. I think everyone kind of expected to see you know what would happen with marijuana. They weren't expecting you know, terrible things to happen with that necessarily. But here, I think that it's this is this is really the first time anyone's tried this, and it's going to be fascinating to watch how it plays out. And it'd be fascinating to see what other states do in response to. Patty, already companies or wannabe companies are exploring ways to make money off of this, even though retail sales are not permitted. People are still trying to figure out how we can make a market here. Right, there's a path to legal access, but that isn't until 2024 of the proposal, and then we'll see if Colorado has legal access. Right now, you could be handing free uh, mushrooms out to anyone at the table just as a lovely gift, but otherwise, you cannot sell it. Yes, there is some laughter. Bill Mayer had a really funny piece on, uh, on the 11th. He had Polis on talking about it. 
Oregon's tried some of this. It's the first state that actually did decriminalize mushrooms. And Oregon is still with us. It hasn't fallen into the ocean yet. It survived. We are seeing, though, a rush, just like with cannabis, where people are suddenly thinking, oh, I'm going to be able to somehow make money. Right now I'm seeing mushroom tourism, for example, is something they're pushing. So we are going to see people jump in, and that's one of the reasons that people are, who are advocates for natural drugs, some of them oppose this bill because they are worried it's going to be become a corporate, big pharma type thing, and mom and pops will be shoved aside, which is really not where mushrooms are now. I mean, they are definitely on the healer mom and pop level. Sean, uh, the mushrooms aren't available right away. I mean, there are some healing centers that do this. There's a lot of logistics that have to be worked out, right? Well, the governor has to, he's going to impanel 15 experts that are going to report to the state. Um, it's, it's def, there's definitely going to be a process where it's full impl implementation, I don't think, is until 2026. But uh, I think to Patty's point, um, you know, that most of the activity um, of, of mushrooms is going to be person to person. And if only they were giving them away as gifts. But let's be, let's be frank. There's a source. People have to go get them and provide them. There's going to be a, there's going to be a lot of illicit use of this, and money is going to change hands, all right? The, and the, the state doesn't capture any of that tax money. Uh, cities can't opt out of having a healing center. They can make it difficult to have a healing center, but, they, but just like with Amendment 64, they can't, they can't opt out. It's kind of like uh, deja, deja vu all over again with uh, people remember the conversation in 2012. Um, I voted against marijuana in 2012, and I voted against uh, mushrooms this time around if only because I just didn't want Colorado to be at the vanguard. Let's, let's let another state try these experimental laws with illicit drugs and then learn from their mistakes as other states have done from Colorado. But Sage points out we're the pioneers, right? <laughs> I want to <laughs> ask you a question, Albus, because you were on the city council of Denver when legaliz legalization of marijuana occurred. And it wasn't the easiest thing to say, okay, what do we do now? What do you see in terms of the job ahead of lawmakers? Yeah, you know, I, I think people forget we were, we were the first in the world uh, to regulate marijuana. Um, a lot of people um, think that there were some European countries that did it, but that was unregulated. And Seattle was actually doing it at the same time, because if you remember, it passed for the state of Washington. Um, we learned a lot. And one of the things that we learned is we couldn't really, as a city, begin to start our regulatory framework until the state really set what the rules were. And if, if I'm looking back, the one thing that I feel that I regret and I feel like we should have put more attention on and pushed the state on is testing. Um, if, you, if you all don't remember, in 2012 and 2013, we begin to see people with, with high uh, THA THC levels of edibles, um, uh, dying, um, jumping off of buildings and things like that. And those are the things that I, concern me about the passage of this is that we've got to make sure that we've learned a lot from marijuana, but we've got to make sure that people are safe in taking um, these things. Mm -hmm. All right. Now it is time for our lightning round of the good and not so good in Colorado. And since we're so close to Thanksgiving, let's call it what we're thankful for. And then let's talk about the thankless, something that you're disappointed by this week in Colorado or beyond. So let's start with you, Patty, with the low point. Well, I'll say this is part good, part, part bad. Monfort Companies bought El Chapultepec, great legendary jazz club that closed in December 2020. People loved it. 
they're excited that someone actually bought it. But unfortunately, the last person who leased it basically ripped everything out that was historic. So we we essentially lost El Chapultepec, and that's something to remember. Okay. Uh, on Monday night, prior to the election, President Donald Trump on the tarmac uh, there to support J.D. Vance, his his Senate candidate, an announced or thinly veils, teases the announcement for his own candidacy. If Republicans didn't need any more evidence that this man cares nothing about Republican, the Republican Party, that was it. You know, I'm going to go back to, you know, I'm an athlete, CU football, we're struggling. And I, you know, it, it is, it's the worst that I've ever seen it. Uh, we're, we're, we're playing horrible. But there's this guy by the name of Deion Sanders. Um, and he is doing a great job uh, with HBCU University, uh, Jackson State. And we are hoping that he will give us a look. Oh, yeah. oh. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's a, it's a, it's a I'm thankless for CU, but thankful for oh. maybe an opportunity. Okay, all right. Sage? Well, Sean kind of stole mine, so what I'll say is uh, <laughs> my, my uh, disappointment uh, is looking at the elected officials who have already stepped forth to say they're going to support Donald Trump. These are people who are afraid of him. They're afraid of his supporters. At the end of the day, they should be more afraid of their descendants and what they're going to think of their ancestors. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about what we're thankful for this week, Patty. Thankful for a lot of good reasons to come downtown. The Mile High Tree lights up, just lit up tonight. Uh, Mile High holidays all over. Just get out and enjoy the city. I'm right on. Sticking with Denver electoral politics, I'm thankful to Denver voters for, uh, for turning down the landlord tax. It was initiated Ordinance 305. I think for the first time in Denver that I can remember, uh, Denver voters actually made a connection between higher taxes and higher cost of living. So Denver voters made the right choice on, on the landlord tax. Okay, Alvis. Nancy Pelosi stepped down. And I'm thankful for her leadership. Whether you agree with her or not, um, the woman in the arena did an amazing deal for 20 years uh, you know, at that place. I'm also thankful for she listened to her caucus and said, you know what, I'm going to move aside and let the leaders step up. We need more leadership like that in America. Mm -hmm. A uh, little bit of a personal note for me, my son Claremont, who turned one yesterday. So I'm very thankful for him. It's been an amazing year, and uh, we're so grateful to have him. I love that. Happy birthday, Claremont. That's wonderful. As we prepare for Thanksgiving and get together with relatives and friends and reach out to those who don't live near us, I wish you all comfort in your communities and hope that a feeling of connectedness to others stays with you for some time. Speaking of community, next Friday we have a special edition of Colorado Inside Out. We will hear from emerging leaders from all all over our state on what community means to them and why their purpose is to lead in order for our communities to thrive. They've got great ideas and we can't wait to share them with you. So warm up those turkey sandwiches next Friday night and join us for a really insightful and inspiring Colorado Inside Out. This one was as well though. Thank you all very much. Thank you for watching. We welcome your comments. So please share them with us on our social media pages or email us at CIO at PBS12.org. And one more reminder, you can catch Colorado Inside Out anytime on YouTube or pbs12.org. I'm Kyle Dyer. Thank you for watching Colorado Inside Out. We will see you next Friday.